Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. This will be the text upon which we cover this morning. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the Word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, is it possible, brothers and sisters, to be a Christian and to not bear any signs of said faith? Or another way to say it, is it possible to know for certain that you are a Christian without bearing the marks of a saint? And I think that our answer would be no. And Paul himself certainly wouldn't be writing to these saints, telling them how he knows that they have been chosen by God without seeing those gospel effects in their life. I don't think he would have made such a a bold statement, a statement that could have lulled them into a, a false sense of security if they truly weren't believers, if he did not know for certain that they were. Paul wouldn't affirm their election unless he was assured of it. And as we looked at last week in verses 4 and 5, Paul told us why he knew that they were chosen by God. And he told us it was because of the Word that was proclaimed. It was proclaimed in power, by the Spirit, and in full conviction. And Paul knew that when the message was proclaimed like that, God would bless the message. And that message would not return void. And now then, as we look at verses 6-8, through Paul is now saying, well, I told you why I know that you should have assurance of your salvation, but now let me tell you why you ought to have assurance of your salvation. And yet, before we go on then, and delve into our text this morning, it is probably good to to define what we mean by assurance of salvation. Because depending upon who it is you ask, you might be getting a very different answer. As if you turn to, to the Roman Catholic Church, right, in the Council of Trent in 1547 and Canon 16, they said this, If anyone saith that he will for certain of an absolute and, and an infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance until the end, unless he has learned it by special revelation, let him be an anathema. Right? So Rome says, you cannot have infallible certainty. You can have only a, a fallible certainty. So I guess you can have a, an uncertain certainty is what they're saying. Right? Right? But as we've gone through these first through first few verses in 1 Thessalonians. I don't think that this is what Paul means when he talks about knowing that they are chosen. right? Because we have to ask ourselves, why would Paul waste his time writing to these people to encourage them that they might know that they are truly saved 
if all he means by it is what Rome teaches. They, they should know that they're saved. Probably saved. Because remember, Rome says you can't have an infallible certainty of your salvation. And so if you say, I I believe, I truly, genuinely have certainty that I am saved, you are cursed, you are condemned by Rome. And so I guess John, the, the disciple whom our Lord loved, was condemned by Rome. For was it not John who said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Right? And so if someone were to come up to us and ask us, what is it that you mean by assurance of salvation? What would your answer be? Would it be more in line with what Rome said? Or would it be more in line with, with what the inspired author of Scripture, John, said? Well, let me tell you what it is that we confess here in the Baptist Confession of Faith. In chapter 18, paragraph 2, actually, if you have your hymnals, you can turn to page 679. And then as I read, you can read along with me as we see what it is we confess about assurance of salvation. Page 679. Chapter 18, paragraph 2. And this is what we confess. This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the Gospel and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made and in the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, which witnesses with our spirits that we are children of God, and it is a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. You see, brothers and sisters, we confess an assurance that is not conjectural, which means it's not a guess, it's not an opinion, it's not mere speculation. Nor is it a a probable persuasion like, I really think that I'm saved. No, but we confess an infallible assurance. Right? The very thing Rome condemns. But what is this infallible assurance based on? Is it based on fairy tale? Is it based on myth? Is it based upon what we really, really, really want in our hearts to believe? No, we're told that it is based on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed to us in the Gospel. Right? It is those promises set forth in the Gospel and their absolute truthfulness that is the basis upon which our assurance stands. And then it it is we confess those inward evidences of those graces of the Spirit unto which the Gospel is made. And they're pouring forth out of our own lives, that we see them in our own lives that affirm to us their reality and confirm to us that they are truly ours. This is how we can know and have assurance of our salvation with infallible certainty. This is the message that Paul is writing to the saints. What encouragement would it be for Paul to say, brothers and sisters, 
I know you're going through tons of trouble. People are questioning your salvation. But I want you to know, I think you're probably saved. And I want you to know that you can think that you're probably saved as well. That's not a message of encouragement, is that? No, what Paul is doing is he's writing to these saints, dealing with persecution, dealing with affliction, and he writes to encourage them that they may know for certain that they are saved. Now what I'm not saying though, brothers and sisters, is that in fact every single one of us have that level of certainty. But what I am saying is that it's attainable. Right? It's attainable. And Paul wants them to have it. This is the only way this message makes any sense. And it is this message that alone brings encouragement and strength and boldness to these saints. Right? This is the very same message that our Reformed brethren confess as well in the Heidelberg Catechism. If you remember when our brother Michael taught through this, Lord's Day, question one. What's the question? What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? And what what is the answer given? It is this. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live to Him. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the liberating message of the Gospel. right? Having received and believed the message and trusted in Christ, we have now been given the Spirit who assures us of our stake in that heavenly inheritance. And it is that same Holy Spirit now who makes us ready and willing to live unto Christ. This is the message Paul is declaring in verses 6-8. through eight. You saints are to know that you are saved because you have trusted in Christ. You have received the message of the Gospel. And we see its effect bearing forth in your life. And that can only happen if you have the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it can happen. This is why they can know for certain. This is the only reason they can have assurance of salvation. It is because of these effects and the the testimony of the Spirit in their life. And because of what Christ has done. Right? And so in our text this morning, Paul highlights two particular reasons for which they can have certainty. He points out two things that should stir them to confidence in their assurance of salvation. And the two reasons that Paul says were the manner in which, in which they received the Word. Right? You can have assurance of salvation because of the manner in which they received the Word and also because of the model they were for others. So the manner in which they received the Word and the model they became for others. So Paul says first in verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of our Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you want to know if you're truly saved? 
If you want to know how you're truly saved, look at how you suffer. Look at how you suffer. Because in how you suffer, it will be evidence unto you if you are truly saved. It can either affirm your salvation, it can call your salvation into question, or it could be a glaring display of its non-existence in your life. We live in a world today that wants to avoid suffering at all costs. They want nothing to do with self-denial and cross-bearing in the Christian life. They want to do none of that. They don't want to be ostracized in school. They don't want to be labeled bigots. They don't want to lose out on friendships. They don't want to lose out on job opportunities. Right? This is one of the reasons why I think that our, our young adults are becoming less and less religious. Right? Less and less religious our young adults are becoming. Right? This is why people are waiting longer and longer to get married. This is why they're waiting longer and longer to have children. And if they're having children, they're having less and less of them. Because we live, brothers and sisters, in a me-centered world. We live in a world that wants to be autonomous. We want to be a people who have total and complete freedom to do whatever it is that we want. We want to enjoy life in its excess. We want to be accepted in this world. And we want to be a part of movements that make us feel like, like we're really important and that we're really helping the world out in some way. But we want to do all these things without losing anything. right? We want to be able to partake of all this but never have to give up a thing to do it. Right? That's the world that we live in today. But this is not the reaction of the Thessalonians, was it? Right? They didn't just do what was easier follow after what popular society said was right and good. Right? But rather, we are told, in the face of affliction, in the face of persecution, they received the Word. And not only did they just receive the Word, they didn't receive it and then grumble and complain about all their troubles. Right? Why me? But no, we're told that they received the Word in affliction in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Right? Robert Rollick a 16th century Reformed minister and professor from Scotland, said this about our text. Affliction is the inseparable companion of the Gospel. And the joy of the Spirit is the companion of affliction. I'll say that once more. Affliction is the inseparable companion of the Gospel. And the joy of the Spirit is the companion of affliction. Right? Which is what he's really saying is, if, if you believe the Gospel, well then, you're also taking forth upon yourself pain and suffering. Right? But the comfort for us, brothers and sisters, in saying such a thing, is the next verse that he says, which is, that although you're going to take upon yourself pain and suffering, you will have the joy of the Holy Spirit if you are a believer. We have the promised Spirit who aids us in any and all trials and tribulations if we are to suffer for Christ's sake. But what this also teaches us then is that this kind of joy is only given by the Spirit. 
Right? The, the Thessalonians didn't cultivate this joy within themselves. Right? This is a, a spirit-wrought joy. It is a divine gift. And so having this divine gift then is likewise an attestation to the believer that you are truly saved. Right? Paul says you can know you have assurance. You can know that you are truly saved and not be shaken by the unbelievers because you have received this Word in stress and in persecution, yet you have received it in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Right? This is how they proved to be God's elect. They did not cut and run, but they received it with the joy of the Spirit. And yet some Christians might ask, how is it that you can have joy in suffering? That's not the type of Christianity I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of Christianity that has no suffering and all the joy. Right? And we should respond because suffering is the will of God in the life of the saints. Suffering is the will of God in our life. Remember, it wasn't too long ago that we looked in Philippians chapter 1. It has been granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer for Christ's sake. And so we can turn that question around and ask them, if you say you are a Christian, how can you not rejoice in suffering knowing that God's will is being done? How can you not? Remember what we read in Heidelberg Catechism Question 1. That part of the answer said this, He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair on my head could fall. Do we believe that? We who have professed to have received the Word and trusted in Christ, we who say that we have the Spirit, that we believe God's Word, that God's Word is true, if we say all that, then you must know that suffering is a part of the will of God. And yet what comfort that must bring to you knowing that nothing will happen to you outside of the control of your Father. He preserves us in such a way that not a hair on our head will fall that is outside of God's control. And many may hear this. And they may say, well, I affirm this. I believe this. But we all know it's not really till you go through certain things that you see this, this truth's veracity in your own life. You see, is it true in my life or is it not? Not really until you go through things. right? You may say, my faith is firmly fixed on Christ and I, I trust in the promises of God that they are for me. But what happens when the doctor walks into the room and says, you have cancer? Or what happens when you walk into work and you have a wife and children and your employer says, hey, sorry, we got to cut your job. Or what happens when you get the phone call? Your family just perished in a car accident. Right? There, then you know. Right? Because do you forsake God? Do you curse His name? Or do you bless God? Do you praise His name? Do you know that He is working out all things for your good and for His glory? And we have examples of this. We aren't alone in this, brothers and sisters. We are told in verse 6, the Thessalonians imitated both Paul and our Lord. Remember in Acts 16, right before Paul traveled to Thessalonica, we're told that he and Silas went around proclaiming Christ. And what happened? 
the unbelieving Jews stirred up a crowd and they beat them and they threw them in jail. And what was the response though of Paul and Silas in jail? We were told that at night they were praying to God and they were singing hymns to Him as they were in prison. They had the joy of the Holy Spirit in their suffering. Right? That was their response. Because they knew that God's will was being done. And so they had joy knowing that this for the short time they might be going through pain and suffering. But it's incomparable to that inexpressible joy that they will have when glory comes. Right? That glory that awaits them. Or we can look to the example of Christ as we are told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It tells us that we are to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God on the throne of God. You see, it was the joy of knowing that Christ was doing the will of the Father that allowed Him to suffer and to die upon the cross. And so if Christ could suffer and could die for you, would you, brothers and sisters, not happily, with joy, suffer in this life for Him? Robert Rollock likewise says this, you should take more joy in suffering for Christ than you do take joy in all of the pleasures that this world has to offer. You should take more joy in suffering for Christ then you should get from every pleasure you can have in this earth. In this earth, right? What a profound statement. Right? But something that isn't believed far and wide today, is it? Right? But the Thessalonians thought this way. Paul thought this way. Timothy thought this way. And Paul says that such a response to the Word, a response in receiving and believing the Gospel in the face of suffering, and receiving it with the joy of the Holy Spirit should be evidence to each and every one of you of your salvation. It should give you assurance of your salvation. Certainty of your salvation. And yet sometimes you might hear the argument, well, it's not good to preach this or to tell people this. Because if you tell them that they can have this, this certainty of, of salvation, well, that's only going to breed complacency. That's only going to cause them then to say, oh, I'm, I know that I'm saved. Well, I can go on and just live an immoral life. But actually, this doctrine teaches the very opposite thing. Right? It teaches the very opposite thing. Assurance is not the enemy of godliness, but rather it is its friend. As we read, remember in paragraph 2 of chapter 18 of our confession, that as the Spirit bears witness and testifies to us that we are truly children of God, it has an effect, we are told. And that effect is keeping our heart both humble and holy. You see, assurance of faith, we confess, produces godliness in us. It doesn't detract from it. And this producing godliness in us, then is how you can know that you have true and saving faith. So if you say, oh, I have faith, but then go on to live an immoral life, you can have no assurance. And what a great example a witness the church can be when we live faithfully and we live holy in the midst of suffering. Imagine the impact 
the church can have. Right? If we followed after the pattern and example of Christ and of Paul, right? And having joy in suffering. This is so lacking and so absent in the church today, but this is the very thing that Paul praises amongst the saints. Look at verses 7 and 8. As Paul says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Here is point two. Paul encourages them to have assurance of faith not only because of the manner in which they received the word, but also because they were models then of the word in their life. You see, brothers and sisters, we were not only elected to salvation. We were not only elected to salvation, but we were likewise elected to service. We were elected to service. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've all probably made a purchase in our life that we've regretted. Right? We've all probably done that. And the reason that we regretted it isn't so much that we regret the item that we bought. Right? But what we regret is that it failed to serve the purpose for which it was bought. It failed to serve its purpose. And so you see, brothers and sisters, you and I can tell people, we can confess Christ to people, we can talk to them about what we believe until we're blue in the face. But if you do not have the life, your words are vain and empty. Because you're not serving the purpose for which you were called. It means nothing if you speak to others about the glories of Christ but you have not them in your own life. It means nothing to people if you tell them of the promises of God in Christ and yet you display a lack of them in your own life. And yet, on the other hand, we see what a great effect the church can be when not only we preach Christ, but we show and display the promises of God in our own life as a church. This is what the Thessalonians were doing, we read, by becoming an example or this word example can also mean a, a pattern or a mold. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be a pattern in our Christian life. A pattern of those who came before us. But what this also teaches us then is that the Christian life isn't an individualistic life. Because those who were first imitators of Paul and imitators of Christ have now become an example for others. Right? You were an imitator, now you're also an example. And so that means for us here that we are to be examples. We are to be examples to the young Christians in our life. We are to be examples to young children who have yet confessed Christ. We are to be an example to our unchurched family and our unchurched neighbors. We are also to be examples to one another. Right? And what a great force this can be when it is blessed and used by God. 
Now, I don't usually use personal anecdotes from the pulpit. I don't, I don't like to use them, and I don't think that they are very, uh, that they should be used from the pulpit. From the pulpit, we're to proclaim Christ, right? Proclaim His Word, not our personal stories. But I'm going to give you a personal story this one time because it's very applicable to what it is I'm telling you about, okay? It, uh, it demonstrates, I think, the power of what I'm, of what we're talking about here. About not only professing Christ, but living the life and the effect that that can have, okay? So I'm going to tell you a little personal story. Now, many of you are probably familiar or have heard, at least to some degree, the story of my mother, okay? My mother passed away from cancer at the age of 42, okay, about 12 years ago. And she, uh, they, they opted for this, this surgery. This last kind of it was like a last try surgery to blast this this uh, the, the the cancer from her brain out. Okay, and so after the surgery though, what ended up happening to her is she pretty much lost all ability to function as a as a human being anymore. Right, uh, she was a very vibrant, athletic, strong woman, and now you had to help her to even get out of a chair. She walked around now in a walker, like a 90 year old woman this strong athletic woman, was now using a walker. And you had to stand behind her and hold her waist as she walked so that she wouldn't fall one side or the other. And yet, this is another reason why I don't tell personal stories. And even after she lost all this ability, I never heard her curse God. I only heard her bless God and praise His name. She even lost ability to communicate properly. But with the words she did use, she used to tell her children and everyone else about Christ, about the Gospel, about His goodness, about His grace and His glory. And I tell you, as I stand here today, that it had a profound effect upon me. Because I was not a believer. But I tell you, God used her. He used her life. He used a profession of faith. He also used her death as a means to draw us to Christ. For I became a Christian through that. My wife became a Christian through that. Our brothers became Christians through that. Think about the impact that one life can have if not only you profess Christ, but you live in accordance with your profession. That's the impact the life can have. And so I ask, do we understand that here? Do we understand that here? That you were not only saved for your own sake, but you were saved for the sake of others. Think about it. This church here, if the church as a whole, the universal church, actually did this, the effect that we could have on the world. And yet what's important to note about this story that I just told and about what Paul has said in verses 6 through 8, 
is that live, just living the life isn't enough. Right? It has to be accompanied by the Word. Is the Word, the spoken Word. Faith comes through. Faith comes by hearing, right? Faith comes by hearing. But what an effect, a, a powerful effect, a lively and active Christian life can have on others, can it? So, sorry for that. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> and so the, the saints in Thessalonica not only were examples by godly living to those in Achaia and Macedonia, which were surrounding cities. But their faith, we're told, went out everywhere. It sounded forth. It echoed loudly. Not only are we told that they lived the life, but they professed Christ. And people seen this, and then they went on to tell others. And they went on to tell others. And this is why Paul then can say, I didn't even have to preach the message where, where, where it went to, where the word sounded forth. I didn't even have to say anything. That's the effect the Thessalonians' faith and life had on others. Right? The impact was that strong. And so is that the impact that we look to have here as a church? Right? Do we look to, although we might go through suffering and trial and persecution, right? do we have the joy of the Spirit in our suffering? Right? Are we looking to make an impact on our neighboring community, on other churches around the nation who hear about this little church who still gathers who still proclaims the Word, who has a new baptized member. Think about the effect it has on others who hear about that. And so as we draw to a close in this morning, I ask, do you have assurance of faith? Do you have assurance of your salvation? Because you can. You can know for certain that you are saved. Have you received the Word? Have you trusted in Christ the Savior? Right? Have you believed the gospel message? Do you have the testimony of the Holy Spirit inside of you which bears witness that you are a child? Right? He provides for you the experiential knowledge of God's truth. Right? When in times of suffering, you all of a sudden have this joy. Right? That's the testimony. That's the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit bearing fruit in your life. Right? And so if you answered yes, you, you should have this assurance of faith. But others may not. And you may not because of sin. And so perhaps God has removed the light of His presence from you. And that has wounded your conscience. But Scripture tells us that we ought to do something. Right? We ought to do something. When it speaks about assurance, it calls us to action. Peter, in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. We must, brothers and sisters, be diligent to confirm our calling. We just don't take it for granted. Right? And so we must ask ourselves, am I continually growing in grace? Right? Am I growing in faith? Do I daily desire to be growing in Christ? Right? Am I daily putting to death the old man? And am I daily becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ? If you don't have evidence of this, then you need to turn to Christ. You need to turn to God. You need to cry out to Him. That if you are His child, that He would give you this evidence in your life that He might confirm your election. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, Examine yourselves 
to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Brothers and sisters, if you are a saint, you should know that Jesus Christ is in you. And you can know that. But never take Christ or the Christian life for granted. Rather, test yourselves. Do a heart check. Where does my heart lie? Where do my thoughts lie? Where do my desires lie? And this ought to answer a lot of your questions. But yet also be praying. We must be a, a prayerful people. Asking God more and more to cause us to hate sin and to love Him and to love His church. That the Spirit would bear witness in us that we are His children. That we might not go through life uh, in despair and uncertainty, but rather that we might have joy and peace and assurance. Yet we also must know that ultimately that assurance of salvation has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the blood and righteousness of Christ which was revealed to you and I in the Gospel. And for that, we ought to be so very thankful. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have granted to us examples like Paul and Yourself. And that even, Lord, You have called us to be imitators, and not only imitators, but examples ourselves. And so we thank You for those examples that You have put in each and every one of our own lives which have helped to guide us in the faith and grow us in the faith. Those who professed faith and lived a life and those whom You have used to, to stir about faith within ourselves. And so Father, we pray this day that You would grant to us a desire to become greater examples that we might not only be those who profess faith but that we would live Uh, a life which demonstrates the effects of the Gospel in that life. That we may uh, live in conformity to Your will and that young Christians or those who are, are not even Christians might see it and might glorify the Father because of it. And so, Father, we ask that You would apply all that it is we've learned this day to our minds and our hearts and that we might live it out this week. That You might cause within us a desire to dwell upon and meditate upon these things that we might come back next week full of grace and praise and thankfulness to You. And we ask all this in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.